I considered shaving my beard and just having my mustache to fit the theme, but then I realized no one would be able to see it and I would be losing my beard for no reason. So you could just say that you do and edit out this part really... and then everyone will think you do. That's I hope you keep, I hope you keep this part in the recording and then you put transition music into what we're actually talking about. Yeah, yeah, about. yeah. Ryan, I'll that's definitely... such a cool mustache and then nothing else. I'll definitely do that. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Radio Ryan Presents Three Ringos, a Beatles podcast uh, here on WCCS Wheaton College Radio. I am, of course, Radio Ryan, your host, and with me are my fellow hosts slash Ringos, Tyler and Harrison. Um, could you guys give me the sound a Ringo in the wild makes real quick? Like a wild Ringo. Got it, got it, got it. Very cool. Um, we are back with our eighth or ninth episode, depending on who you ask, uh, of our Beatles history podcast. And today we are discussing a very uh, underground, indie, uh, super unknown album. Uh, very little project no one's ever heard of called uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, arguably the Beatles' most famous album, uh, released in 1967 in the spring, just before the famous Summer of Love. Don't ask me what that was, because I don't know. But uh, I do know a lot about this album, and we're here to talk about that album. And normally I would say, before we get into everything, let's talk about some singles. But as we mentioned last week, we're not doing that this week. Uh, we'll talk about it more at the end of the episode, but we're switching up from UK release to US release when it's convenient, as Americans love to do. So we're just going to go straight into the history of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and then we're going to get into every single song on this album, and we're going to have no funny business about it. We're going to have business, and we're going to have things that are funny, but no funny business. I'll we're not going to be funny at all. Yeah, I'm going to be super serious. I mean, that's no, that's no different than normal, though. That's true. Yeah, but this time we're going to try not to be funny. Yeah, actively. Um, so, so let's talk about Sgt. Pepper's. As we mentioned a bit last week with uh, Revolver, the Beatles are winding down their uh, stint as the world's most popular band on stage because uh, they don't like touring anymore. It's long. It's very difficult. They're constantly doing it. Uh, and so many people are coming that they can't hear themselves play. They were becoming poor musicians, as Ringo put it, because you couldn't hear yourself play over the screaming of the fans, so you're basically miming your own songs, and they weren't having fun. George Harrison wanted to leave the band, but when they decided not to tour, he thought, okay, then I'll stick around because I just can't do touring anymore. And George Harrison wouldn't tour again in, uh, the, United St in the world, in the until the 90s he did like a couple tours in his he's one of the only beatles besides paul that like i mean besides john that didn't like touring at all uh so john and george really wanted to quit touring ringo was like okay and paul was like please i love being on stage and they were like no paul everybody hates it he said okay fine so paul I mentioned that for a reason, not just because like we want to know what paul's thinking so paul comes back to england and he's like hmm the lads don't like touring and uh, they don't want to really, you know, m vibe with me on stage, but I'll connect with them. Why don't I do LSD? Because there was this whole thing in the Revolver and Rubber Soul era where 
the other three had done LSD, and they're like, Paul, you're a loser. You haven't done LSD. We can't relate to you because you haven't done LSD. So one time on his own, Paul just said, you know what? Fine, I'll do LSD. And he told John Lennon, and John Lennon was thrilled. He was like, oh, my God, bestie. We can talk about acid together, and now we're on the same wavelength. And Paul was like, it, was, it wasn't that crazy, but okay. Um, and thus the D.A.R.E. program was born. And so there's, Lennon and – there's no one. There's no one in history who could be like, ah, oh, Paul McCartney, what a loser. <laughs> Three Beatles. Right, right. The, so John and Paul get along extremely well during this, this Sergeant Pepper's period, um, and Paul starts to become more of a leader in the band uh, going forward because he's become more assertive, and for various reasons, John Lennon's become a little more passive. So we're seeing a slow shift towards Paul being. Uh, not just the leader within the Beatles, but even equivalent to their manager, uh, Brian Epstein, or their producer, George Martin, Paul is rising to that level of influence in the band. Um, but the Beatles take a break, first and foremost. They say, we're done touring. If you want to see the Beatles live, you can't do it ever again, except once. Uh, but it's like, we're not going to do it. And we don't have any commitments because we're the Beatles. And so now that we don't have any tours, we have nothing to do. And no company is telling us you need an album out by this time because we would just say no we don't want to put it out then so they take a three-month break which is the longest they've ever had off and they all pursue their individual interests um paul as we mentioned a bit last time is really into the london art scene really into avant-garde stuff john lennon because he's now closer with paul starts to get more involved in that he goes to some art exhibitions including one um created by Yoko Ono, who he meets at this time. Who becomes How did that a, turn out? It turned out well for John. Um, Good for him. And Yoko, but who's to say otherwise? Um, they will obviously eventually get married. Um, but Yoko, in terms of musical influence on the Beatles, doesn't matter yet. It feels weird to say that a person doesn't matter. But... Um, George Harrison embraces more and more of uh, Indian classical music and Indian spirituality and Hinduism. And Ringo, and I read this, this is cute. Ringo took this time to be with his wife and son. He was like, you guys are all pursuing your art interests. I'm just going to be a father. Um, no big deal. So around the time uh, after this three-month break, they start to think about making new songs um, both Paul and John, now that they're connected, start thinking about their childhood. They make uh, two songs called Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, which were supposed to be on the album, but then their record label was like, we need a single. So they said, okay, put it out as a single. We'll take it off the album. But, uh, and we'll talk about those next week. But them making those songs really inspired them, and especially Paul, who thought of Liverpool, where they grew up, and his childhood. And he thought, wouldn't it be nice to make this album that we would have liked when we were kids and has this sort of like, uh, they call it Edwardian era, like when King Edward was the leader of Britain and there were all those like pointy hat policemen with like weird marsh, like early, early 1900 stuff. Like really British. Really, really British. And they're like, what if we made sounds like that? And Paul McCartney said, we've been so busy being the Beatles you know, on stage, on tour, selling millions of records and being so popular, like the most famous people on the planet, wouldn't it be nice to be somebody else for a little bit? And we don't have to go with the, oh, the Beatles sound like this and look like this, you know, they, they make rock and roll music and they have these mop 
haircuts and all that. He's like, what if we could just make music how we wanted to without any perceptions? So what if we pretended to be other people? And that was what started this Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band thing, which is a loose concept album about this fictional band. Only like two or three songs actually involve the band, but um, people have argued that those set the tone for it's not like a concept album with a story but it has like a theme of musical adventurousness there's some whimsy some childhood nostalgia in here it's very uh, english as uh, tyler was saying they start to embrace different instruments like you know orchestral instruments western classical music eastern classical music like this is a lot of people call this the first progressive rock album or art rock album I wouldn't go that far, but it's kind of like proto that. Uh, and again, it was sort of the prelude to the summer of love. It's very psychedelic. Everybody really saw this as the album of the generation. It, it would really go on to encompass the feelings of the people who listened to it. It was pretty popular. Uh, people liked it. If if I can understate it a bit, it went on to, it got Jesse, some. You said that so like, you made it sound like this barely made the charts. Like people just... liked it. It was good. It was. It number... was listened to. It was number one in in England for twenty seven weeks and in America for fifteen weeks. And uh, Rolling Stone called it the greatest album of all time. But it, you know, whatever. Wait, uh, Ringo Rama wasn't considered the greatest album of it all was, time. It was. It was close. It was close. It it went Ringo Rama, Bob Dylan screaming into a microphone for sixty minutes, and uh, this one. So mm. it was close. That was my that was my like fifth Bob Dylan slam of the podcast. If we're keeping the counter, yeah, let's keep let's bring that guy down a notch. Yeah, get better at electric guitar. Um, and this, if we uh, look back a bit, when I talk about my Beatles periods theory, um, this is the the peak of the Beatles classic period. A lot of people have called it peak Beatles in terms of collaboration this is definitely probably the peak of john lennon and paul mccartney working together um and most of the band members remember this time finally john lennon said they were definitely working well together here ringo had a good time george looking back said that he kind of felt like a player in a band because as time would go on he would sort of miss the other atmosphere of being a guitarist you know, in a, in a rock band, whereas this, it sort of felt like, okay, you get your one song and then play this on this and this on that. And it felt like he was sort of a session musician. Uh, but other than that, some good feelings in this album, some good vibes, and apparently some good music. I, I, I'm, I'm one to say, I guess. Um, so that's a bit of the history of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. Bit of a mouthful. Uh, before we get into the tracks themselves. I wanted to know your thoughts, Tyler and Harrison, about how the album was made, how you think that might have influenced what you heard, and going into uh, our discussion, some of your general thoughts on the album. This, to me, feels like uh, their most cohesive idea of an album so far. I mean, I've always been a huge fan of the concept album, like artists putting together a narrative through their music, creating this whole sort of world with each of their songs that contributes to the same general thematic idea, the through line. And I think that that comes together beautifully in this. You can tell how well planned out this is. I mean, obviously the intro being called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Pro Band and then having a reprise later. 
uh, is echoed, but also just the fact that every sound here feels like it's echoed in a different part of the album. And it feels like they're just sort of creating this big painting of sound with all these vivid colors and all these songs that probably they wouldn't have written songs about in even the past couple albums where they were trying even more stuff. Um, it just feels like a culmination of them trying to be creative and put together something that's less a collection of songs like Revolver, which is an amazing album that I love. But I think this is a much more cohesive idea of let's have all these songs work together rather than this song's great and this song's great. So uh, I, I really, really dug what they did here. And I'm sure. <laughs> Wait, should we do? Yeah. Hey, if you're listening to this, it's because we had a screw up in the pausing and restarting of this video. Back to the podcast. I love how cinematic this album fears, feels. Like I said, I'm a big fan of the concept album. Uh, when an artist creates an album in service of one general idea or story or making a world of characters that they create and they have that come through in the music. Um, and I love just how much this album kept me on my toes. I'd get songs about stuff I had never heard them make songs about before and uh, executed in ways I had never seen them executed in ways before, whether it's an unexpected drum break here or sudden horns or uh, the way they even structure a song. I've never heard them structure like it before. Um, I think it's such a beautiful, cool uh, experiment for them. And it created a really great, feeling of this album almost like a mosaic of, or something i thought it was awesome it was just like hearing how the band were able to work together like it was just nice that they were able to stop you know collaborate and just listen to each other to make something that was great um this is definitely like this was the album they thought revolver was gonna be i think which is like we noticed last time that paul was sort of like the outlier on a lot of the songs and this sort of seemed like oh they're all firing in unison and all in the same cylinders. So just like, it's it's the album they thought Revolver was, because I wasn't a huge fan of Revolver. Well, some interesting takes early on, and I hope that uh, fiery spirit of conversation continues as we jump right into Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The first song is the title track, which I will not restate, but this is the Sgt. Pepper's song. And uh, this is unlike a lot of uh, uh, songs at the time, when you put on a Beatles album, we talked last week about how Taxman was uh, an interesting opening for the band as a song. This is definitely their most ambitious one by far. You kind of get right into it with the, it's like chitter chatter of an audience and like a little music. And then you can hear like a chorus of applause and it almost sounds like a curtain opens and things go in it. This song really sets up the whole album as kind of like a show. My, my vision of this album as a concept album is like you're seeing it at like a weird like circus music hall thing happening live uh, and people are like running around pushing sets everywhere like it's a play. And this is the opening number and I wanted to know uh, what you guys thought about this one. It's funny, I picture this taking all place inside of a big pepper so we just have different images. Um, no, but it was like, it's, I love, this goes throughout all the album, but what they were able just to do with sound design, which was, again, we saw on the last album a little bit. Like, it's such an interesting, it's an interesting opening. The only thing that was weird about it, it was slower than I remember. I don't know why I think of it as much faster than it was. Maybe because I've seen the, sorry, my cat is here, but maybe because I've seen the, um, 
the fake Beatles play a few times at the place I worked at, and they play this song. Um, and I loved it. Use of there was brass instruments, which was amazing. I just, it's so weird to think that this song, and really, I mean, obviously, every song on this album was just never performed live. I don't know if Paul or John or Paul or Ringo play this live when they have concerts. I doubt it. But it was just so like it's so weird to think that this, such a great song has never been performed by the group. Yeah, I love how uh, those are some great points, Harrison. I love how dynamic this song feels, even just if you go by the vocals alone, the way it sort of starts with almost a shouting and then it gets to a more melodic part in the chorus and then it sort of evens out towards the end. And then the willingness of the music to change up from the immediate uh, opening of the guitar strumming, which I thought was a great sort of wake up call as soon as snap from the background noise to that. Um, and then when it switches from sort of a, a brass horn section, I thought was really, really interesting. Um, I think it's a great intro, partly because it demonstrated their willingness to show how many instruments they're willing to use to make their artistic point known. I mean, granted, you don't need 60 instruments necessarily to make a great album, but for this album, I think they knew that they wanted to use the whole orchestra, whatever was at their hands to make this thing, not a single uh, little puddle of color from the, the paint easel would go unused. So I thought it was really cool. Oddly, the perfect number to make a great album for orchestra is 47 instruments. So I don't know if you knew that, Tyler, but that's what us musicologists know. Thank you. I See, now I get what music is. Well, um, you guys have made some great points. Um, I want to address a couple of things that have been said. The first is live. Interesting story. So Paul McCartney's played this live a lot um at his songs um at his concerts i mean and the funniest uh well i guess it's not very funny but something that is always really interesting to me is that the beatles like kind of reunited in like 1979 uh eric clapton was getting married and he invited all the beatles except john and they all came and this was at a time when not everybody was on great terms, but there's like photos from the wedding and they all look really happy. And they played like three or four songs, including this one. And John Lennon said, if he had been invited, he would have gone. And that's like an interesting thought to be like, Oh, maybe they all, all four of them could have been in the same room again, playing songs at Eric Clapton's wedding. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a funny idea. Also, also just cause like, if you think of every album they have after this, they potentially only played one time together for every song because they never performed it live again. So like as a group, they potentially just played it the one time to get it recorded and then moved on. And that's just a really weird thing because you think of so many great songs to come and people will cover them. Right. It's like the actual band that made them maybe played it a handful of times. Yeah, we, we luckily have live versions of a lot of Beatles songs thanks to Paul McCartney incorporating them into his tours. But um uh, it's true that going forward, most of these songs will never be played uh, more than uh, as many times as they needed to be in the studio by the Beatles. Side um, note, uh, do we know why John wasn't invited to that? Is there like a John Eric Clapton beef I wasn't aware of? I don't think there's beef because they're friends. Um, like they, they have like, I think it was probably he was least well, I don't know. I honestly don't know. But um, my guess is, and there's no basis for this, is that he 
if he invited all four of them, he was like worried about them not getting along. And so he invited maybe the three he, he was closest to or knew would get along the best because he was close with John, but John and Paul obviously would have had some, at that time, some things to say to each other. John and George didn't always get along. It's interesting to me that he invited Paul because I'd never heard he would be close to Paul, but I'm, I mean, I'm glad it happened. Also was, Eric Clapton, Mary, and George's ex-wife there? Uh, I don't know at that time. And while this is a really interesting piece of Beatles history, I would like to move on from Eric Clapton's wedding. Um, so yeah, a lot about the song, a lot of great points that you guys have been made. It really feels like a live performance, an opener to this album. And I agree that it's a really great one. I love the opening guitar riff. And the end of the song segues perfectly into our next song, which is with a little help from my friends, uh, Ringo's song for the album. It was written by John and Paul for Ringo. Um, John Lennon uh, said that it was mostly Paul. Paul said that it was more half and half. Uh, and Ringo helped a bit with the music. Um, the, uh, there, there is a lyric in there that got cut about, would you throw ripe tomatoes at me? Uh, for the song, which I thought was funny to include because apparently in one interview in like 1964, George Harrison mentioned he liked jelly beans and at like every Beatles show afterwards, people would throw jelly beans at him, which is so disrespectful, but also very funny. That's the height of luxury, I think. You get famous enough for people to throw jelly beans at you. Yeah. So this is a Ringo song. Ringo sings on it. Um, he, in my opinion, sings very well. Um, and the, uh, the fun story about his vocals on this is that it was late when they were recording and there's that high note at the end of the song that is usually out of Ringo's range. And he's like, I can't do it. We have to rewrite the song. Like, I can't get that high. And all the Beatles were like, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And they like crowded around the microphone while he was singing that part. Um, and they all like cheered when he got it. And it shows sort of how everybody loved Ringo. And uh, Ringo's obviously very uh, fond they of the song. They all cheered it, and it ruined the tape. <laughs> um, song has been a big uh, hit for Ringo, who has played it every single time he's played with his all-star band. Uh, it's usually the closer. And so he obviously likes it, and I wanted to know if you guys liked this one. I don't think it's his strongest vocal performance. I thought that was Yellow Submarine. Just a little hot take there. Um, no, but it's a great song. This is, I think, their first song that they had with a lead-in, if that makes sense, like song blended into another one. They've all, and I don't think there's, there's like one other song in this album that has that, but like it's just interesting that they leaned into that where it was like a lead into it or they hadn't done that before. Um, also the drumming was pretty light in it. Like it wasn't a heavy, like on Revolver, you probably saw like his Ringo's best drumming, but for this one, there wasn't a huge amount of it going on. But yeah, like, it's probably, it's, it was much more musically strong than I remembered it being. And also it's a different version, but it's a callback to their um, call and response songs off of their earlier albums, if you think about it. So like, it's, it's a different format, but that was huge in their first, what, three, four albums. And it's brought back into this one. Great point about the call and response thing. That was one of the things that stood out to me most is, uh, I mean, the fact that obviously it was just Ringo singing, but the fact that you had the three other Beatles responding to him in real time uh, in the background vocals, I thought was such a nice 
way to sort of uh, pay justice to what the song is really aiming for, like the feeling of camaraderie, which is very palpable here. It's just a very sweet, like weirdly touching song. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Ringo's vocals too. I personally, I really like his vocals here. Um, the lower register, I think, suits him well. And then I think to make it a little more, bit more dynamic uh, and him sort of nailing that that final note that he needed to was a really nice grace note. I think it's a lovely little song. I think it also helps further uh, ingratiate the viewer sort of with like uh, what this world of Sgt. Peppers is going to sound like. Because uh, you can hear echoes of this song and other songs. Obviously, they don't sound the exact same, but it gives you a nice little intro to the vibe. I just wish they had thrown Ringo a really weird and deep song. Just like would have thrown everyone off. And it would have been like, because all of his songs are like light and happy. And I get that. But it would have been just very funny if you feel like, okay, Ringo's going to sing lead on She's Leaving Home. Anyway, let's go. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. I, I guess she's leaving. I think, I think a lot of that has to do, and as you guys are both saying, the sound of the song has to do with Ringo as a person. When John and Paul would write songs for Ringo, they imagined him singing it. And this song, even though Ringo didn't write it himself, sounds a lot like Ringo as a person, you know, from every, everything that I've heard about him and read about him, he seems like a very lovely, happy guy. And uh, this song really fits with him. And you can tell that he's really comfortable on the song. I think the drums are a little lighter in this one, just because Ringo probably couldn't do both. I think it's really hard to play the drums and it's even harder to play and sing at the same time. So, um, but I do like this song a lot. Uh, I think it's very happy. It's a great intro. It, it, a lot of people have said this isn't like a strong concept album because we don't really get like the band theme a lot, but I do agree with Tyler's point that this song sort of sets the stage of it doesn't necessarily have to relate to the actual fictional band, but this sort of mood that goes through the rest of the album, uh, kind of happy, kind of strange, but uh, very enjoyable. Um, happy, strange and enjoyable is a perfect way to describe our third song, I believe. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, one of the Beatles' more famous songs written and sung primarily by John Lennon. Um, this song, as I'm sure many people have heard, was famously thought to be about LSD because Lucy, Sky, Diamonds. But uh, John Lennon said that it was inspired by his son Julian bringing home a picture of a girl in the sky and he called it Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds after his classmate Lucy. Uh, and he denied that it's a song about drugs and instead said that the vivid imagery, though often uh, associated with psychedelic drugs, is about uh, Alice in Wonderland. And that's sort of the inspiration for the, the visuals in the lyrics of the song. Um, but without further ado, we'd like to know what you guys think about this one, Lucy in the Sky, with those diamonds. Hey, hey. I absolutely love the atmosphere of this song. It's this is I think this is one of the best Beatles songs in terms of one of their best that sounds the best in headphones. I I think especially the beginning where it leads in with sort of synths and then picture yourself. It just feels so intimate, like you're being whispered into your ear, like some weird secret or something. Um, it's this song is beautiful right off the bat. The guitar strings. I looked up that George is playing an instrument called the tambura, which I believe is an Indian instrument. Um, it really added to the very vivid and dreamlike feel of all of this. Um, the imagery of the lyrics is really cool too. Granted, it's almost definitely drug fueled, but I, I think if that inspires them to be more creative, then you know, go for it. Like girl with kaleidoscope eyes. I think every lyric here is so memorable 
uh, even outside of the music, but the music brings it to a whole nother level for me. Um, it's, it's incredibly hypnotic and, and gorgeous and it really brings to mind some other world outside of just uh, the first two songs and what they do because they have their purpose. But this, I think, opens up a whole new world of crazy abstract imagery for me. I, I really love this. So I may have to, I guess, go against Tyler's pro-drug stance that he just espoused. I am not, I, I am, I'm okay with them using drugs for this because it made a great album. I, I, I think it made their lives more difficult, so I'll be anti-drugs. Um, I'm, I get, I get what everything that Tyler said because he's basic and the song is trash. No, I, I'm not a huge fan of this song, honestly. Like, but I know it's a good song or a great song so it didn't negatively impact how i viewed the album but i'm just not a huge fan of john's voice in it at least at the beginning part like i think ryan correct me if i'm wrong but in these last few albums john has been using his natural voice less and it's much more like it's distorted by the music or not by like something i don't know distortion but like it's definitely it's not as clear as it was and you think of like on uh, a hard day's night where it's like there's no distortion it's just him and i'm not a i'm a bigger fan of john's normal voice than i am like his this super heavy psychedelic drug phase um but there's so many weird lyrics in this song like um rocking horse people marshmallow eyes like i've never read alice in wonderland and i can't remember sitting through the animated movie so i don't know if that's a thing that happens in the movie if it isn't then it's definitely about drugs but Something that was weird is that the um, there was constant. It seemed like there was constant background noise. Like there was always something going on at the periphery, which was very interesting musically. And I thought like, is that just my headphones? But I think it was actually the song. But like it was always just like this, not ambient noise, but just a uh, background noise going on that added to the entire thing. So not my favorite song, but I know it's a great song. Also, thank you. I, the listener won't know this, but I kicked my computer by accident. And it went like almost flying off the table it's on. So thank you, Co. Thank you, other Ringos, for not visibly looking at me funny. Yeah, you well, loved the song so much you kicked your computer. You you would have played it off perfectly if you didn't just mention that on air. But uh, we're not really on air. So and then he fell over and his pants fell off. It was like yeah, really embarrassing. He's naked. Fire to my house. You know, yeah. these things happen. Well, I do really like this song. Uh, I really, really Basic. like the, the lyrics. I think it's very interesting. To, to me, I always, this is one of those songs where everything he's saying, I immediately just picture it in my head. I know that's what he's asking me to do, but like, like Rocking Horse People, I'm just thinking of this strange, like when he says pictures off on a boat on a river, this gives me very Charlie and the Chocolate Factory vibes of you're on this boat going down and all this crazy stuff is happening on the shores, but I feel like safe. Uh, I think Harrison's point about the vocals is definitely valid. I do think there's some nasally there, um, nasally uh, tones there. It, it's a, it's a he little- does de- He does definitely have a, no- a nose. Right. It's a little distorted, but I do enjoy it. Um, I think that it, there is something of John Lennon that has this weird like, he goes back and forth on himself a lot. And one of his things that he's always said in interviews and books that he's self-conscious about is his voice. And he said he doesn't like the way he sang on this song. And he actually doesn't really like the song. He likes the lyrics, but he felt that it, the sound didn't accurately resent what he's going for. 
which is funny because uh, John Lennon's friend, Elton John, said it was one of the greatest songs ever written. And those two did a version of it in the 70s for uh, Elton John's album. And a quick story I'll tell about that is that they did that song together and then they did an Elton, they did a John Lennon song, a solo song together called Whatever Gets You Through the Night, great song. And John Lennon was like, that was fun. And Elton John said, that's going to get number one. Like that was a great song. And John Lennon said, it's never going to get number one. Like my songs don't really go number one anymore because this is 1976 or something. And Elton John said, if it goes number one, you have to play Madison Square Garden with me live. And it did, and John Lennon did, which was one of his few live performances after the Beatles broke up. So this song uh, inspired that collaboration. So, so some fun things that come out of it. I really like it. Uh, a lot of people have really enjoyed the song. I, I, with Tyler, really, really like the uh, sound of the song. And I think it's great. And it's better than Harrison says this. And it's better than Harrison's life. You're all basic. But I guess we can all agree that John does have BWE, Big Wonka energy. <laughs> this is true. Moving on to uh, track four is Paul McCartney's uh, Getting Better. This is uh, the first in three straight Paul McCartney songs, kind of showing his musical dominance in this period. Uh, Getting Better is, if you remember, I don't know if I said this on air, but I said it to you guys, I remember a long time ago, uh, for a week during like Beatlemania, Ringo was sick and couldn't go on the Australian leg of their tour. So they hired Jimmy Nickel as a replacement drummer to do it, which is insane to me. Uh, and he played with the Beatles for like a week and then he left and he was no longer famous, which is equally insane. Anyways, on tour, the Beatles would be like, hey, Jimmy, how is it like being a Beatle? Like, isn't this insane? Like you went from being a normal drummer to like on stage in front of 50,000 people. And every day he would go, well, it's getting better. It's getting a little bit better. And later, years later, uh, Paul McCartney was asked, you know, how are you doing, Paul? Uh, and he said, oh, it's getting better. And then he thought of Jimmy Nicklin, thought, oh, that was a great time. So let, let me use these lyrics for a song. So he used it for this song, Getting Better, a uh, very fun sort of uh, upbeat, sort of daydreamy song. A couple points here about uh, Paul and John's collaboration on this song. It's one of their most notable uh, in that it was a Paul McCartney song, but during it, John Lennon would add little bits and Paul liked it and would keep it in. So there's obviously the Paul saying, it's getting better all the time. And then you can hear John Lennon go, can't get no worse. And you're like, oh, oh, John. And there's also the lines that are about, uh, I used to be cruel to my woman uh, and those those lyrics are, if you know anything about John's personal history about himself, he's like, oh, I used to I used to hit women, I shouldn't do that. I'm trying to get better. And so they they sort of rolled it together in Paul McCartney's, oh my my life is slowly getting better. And John's like, oh, I'm trying to be better. Into this one, getting better. One of my favorites on the album. And I'd like to know what you guys think. I guess I really liked the song for the first part of it, and then. It did seem to take like a really big turn quickly of like, oh, is this about abuse? Like I didn't like, I'm glad you mentioned that and when describing the song, cause I saw like, I forget what it was, but I think I wrote down like, oh, this turned quickly. Cause like I said, either I didn't pick up on it the first part, it only became explicit after, but I was just like, ah, that's weird. 
it seems like the undertone to a lot of their later songs about relationships are about how bad they are or the character is in them to the women in the relationship. So because that's interesting, but also really sad. But I also said, I think I liked, I did like the song. I really liked the singing on it. But also I said like the music that was like hanging at the end was like ominous. So it was like, oh, it's getting better. But I was like, but who is it getting better for? Like, is it for the other person in the relationship? Is it getting better for them? And then, yeah, they, also like it's getting better and then can't get much worse. It's just a very like, I don't know, it, it probably does describe Paul and John's personalities from what we know of them, of like Paul to sort of being at least outwardly presenting an optimist. And then John being John of like, hey, like it's just, I don't know, it's, it's literally the same sentence, but two very different meanings to it. Yeah, uh, great points. I found myself really, really interested by that dichotomy in this between Paul and John and how on a lot of their collaborations, I don't think there is, there's as clear a divide between, okay, John definitely wrote this part or Paul definitely wrote this part. Because for this one, especially considering that it's a concept album that tends to prioritize more uh, the perspective of character, it's really interesting seeing both of their personalities come through here so, so, uh, so vividly. Um, and in a way that in, uh, the song still sounds cohesive to me, even though obviously there are parts of it that conflict with each other. It's not in a negative way. To me, it, it just creates a more sort of interesting experience because uh, the song sounds so naturally optimistic. Paul's vocals are so immediately bright and distinctive, uh, especially with the piano behind it and uh, the guitar work that has like a great little twang to it. Um, and then it gets balanced out by by John's contributions. I just found it was a really interesting sort of almost time capsule of uh, of how they co still collaborate with each other at this point and how different that would be early from their career would be, okay, somebody throws a line in here or there and here's, no, we're going to let both of our personalities and our sort of what makes us so complicated come through in this song and let it stand as is. So I thought it was really, really interesting. It also, it would just be interesting maybe to chart at one of our last episodes where we think vocally they all peaked in the Beatles period. Cause like for me, John peaked a while ago for how good he sings. Like I don't really like the distortion to it. I think we, George is gonna keep getting better. I think Ringo peaked on Revolver. But like, again, this is all vocally, nothing like not talking about instrumental writing or anything. Um, but I think Paul is sort of is like continuously just getting better. <laughs> I like the song, but this, for his singing, does he keeps getting better? And I'm just wondering, like, I guess we'll have to see in the next few albums if it continues or if it just sort of like stays like how he's singing on this album. Cause he just sounds great in every song he sings. Yeah, I like, uh, I like the song a lot. I like the vocals on it. I love the chorus on this song. For some reason, it just makes me smile listening to it every time. And um, there's a lot of uh, fun little lyrical quirks like we mentioned here. And I think it's a, a, a really interesting it sounds like something that would be a, if you look at the lyrics and some of the sound, you can kind of see how it is reminiscent of earlier Beatles works, but it's got a bit of a Sgt. Pepper's flavor to it. And I really, really like this one. The next one is Fixing a Hole, a song that I've always thought was very, very interesting. Um, it's sort of one of those Beatles songs where you don't always know what they mean lyrically. And I think it's one of the more interesting ones that you can interpret. Um, and I just want to jump right into fixing a hole. What did you guys think? 
instrumentally and melodically, I thought this was a really, really fascinating and distinctive song. But the tone of Paul's vocals here, I was a big fan of. It reminded me a little bit of, of how he sort of phrased things and spoke in a bit more of a, of a romantic sort of wistful tone in like the song Michelle, which was one of the highlights of the earlier catalog, in my opinion. Um, his vocals, like I said, they were consistently uh, intriguing. And I love the use of the harpsichord in this, at least I think it was at the very beginning. Um, it, I've always really, really loved hearing that in songs, especially considering it's a very old instrument. Uh, groups like Vampire Weekend have used it really well. So that's part of where my love comes for it. Um, and uh, the melody of it and just how Paul's vocals would just sort of drift off and sort of sink to the ground and then come right back up again for the hook, I thought was really, really, um, it speaks to their willingness to sort of do something different and still have a cohesive message behind it. I thought it was a very cool song. This also may be one of the first time that Paul had two songs in a row because usually it goes like Paul, John, George, like, I don't know, like John has had songs in a row before, but I'm trying to think of other albums and it doesn't seem like Paul usually has multiple songs in a row. So that's just, inter that's just I guess, interesting thing. It speaks to Paul's place in the band growing. I also didn't write down who sang the song. So I'm really hoping Paul was the one who sang it and Tyler's right in that. I'm getting the nod. He is. Okay. Or I can be wrong and you can laugh at me. Ha! But, um... <laughs> No, I thought it was just about the narrator obviously trying to like keep sane, which is something that's interesting. It just like doesn't really care about the outside world, which seems much more like a John thing to write about than a Paul thing to write about. Um, no, but I really, really liked it. Great background stuff, like background guitar stuff I thought was really, really great. Um, I wrote down, I guess he mentions the word rain. I need to take better notes because I put what's the actual rain in this? I guess lyrically, I probably have something to do. And I don't know, when they mention words from other songs, I'm like, I wonder if that's supposed to be like an intentional connection or just because there's only so many words in the English language that can go into a song. But yeah, I thought it was really good. Um, I didn't analyze the lyrics too much, but I really just thought it was about someone trying to like keep saying and push out the rest of the world just for themselves. Yeah, it, it's an interesting song. The the lyrics, those first ones are, I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wandering. And to me, it's a very interesting, uh, the, the Electric Light Orchestra has a song where they take the lyric and say, there's a hole in my head where the rain gets in. And it's a very interesting, to me, I'm interesting, like almost like a cartoon where you have this big crater in your head where rain's coming in. Um, but to me, it, it is that sort of thing where maybe negativity's coming in or in some interpretations it's that you have this sort of open mind and then sort of like doubt comes in because he says the rain is stopping him from wandering and he's doesn't want that because he's fixing the hole she's like i want my mind to wander i want to be free mentally it's an interesting song i think it's fun uh this is one that paul plays live more often than i thought he would um just sort of him and the piano a lot of the times live um this is the second of three paul mccartney songs in a row uh, of him singing and writing. The third one is She's Leaving Home. This is a song that I've always really liked and I can kind of tell that you guys like just by looking at your stupid faces. Um, Paul uh, and John wrote the song together. Um, George and Ringo are not involved at all in the uh, writing or singing or recording or anything. Uh, so it's a, it's an interesting just single, uh, Paul and John. 
And uh, the other thing, and I know Tyler will like this, is that um, Paul McCartney visited Brian Wilson in 1967, uh, and he played this song for him. And Brian Wilson said it was beautiful, and me and my wife cried when we listened to it. So that's a, a nice endorsement as we get into uh, this song, She's Leaving Home. What do you guys think? One of the best Beatles songs of all time. I'm not sure if it's top 20, but it's definitely like top 30, I think, of best Beatles songs. Um, this is definitely the song that's like, I think, I don't know if anyone ever writes a song purposely to be like, I want to make the listener get really sad and maybe cry. Like, but I feel like if that was their goal, they probably succeeded many, many times because it is just so like emotionally gut-wrenching because it talks about, oh God, just like, I don't know, was, was there mandolin in this? Was that the beginning part? I'm trying to, I always try to pick up. Kind of sounds like harp to me. There's a lot of violin on the song and there's there's a harp, but I don't know if there's a mandolin. Uh, that's disappointing on my part then I couldn't pick it up. But anyway, it's just like, uh, it's just so good. I thought the note aspect of it, whereas like the line was like wishing it said more. That's interesting because they're all writers as well. And I wonder if that's something they think of like, I think everyone who does write probably wishes they could express themselves better in writing, even if you're like you're a professional writer. I'm sure you're always thinking like, this doesn't say, you can never fully write down what you mean, if that makes any sense. You may not even be able to communicate what you always fully mean or feel. And it's just an interesting aspect. I really liked it. Um, I was wondering if this had anything to do with the Beatles' relationships with their parents, like about, because obviously Paul and John both lost their moms, but Paul went from living with his dad to like being the world's most famous man in like a five-year period, like a one-year period, basically. Like he was still living home as, as a Beatle. So just wondering how he, what his relationship is like with him. God, it's interesting that, I don't know, I love the song so much. It's, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll keep talking. I'll just turn it over to Tyler. I'll show up more to say after. No, I'm, I'm glad you feel the same way about the song that I do. It's, it completely knocks the wind out of me every time that I hear of it. Uh, it's, it's one of the few songs in the album I had heard before I did this full listen. And uh, it has the same emotional effect on me. Like I start to well up by the end of it every single time. Um, I, I think that uh, storytelling wise, I find it super, super uh, poignant for them to be switching from an omniscient perspective of talking about the father and the mother snoring. And then you go right into the perspective of the parents in the chorus. You're taking them in and out of what it's like to be them and what it's like to sort of grasp for that acceptance, that closure that you might not actually get of uh, having a child move on and do something else. Uh, the harmonies here, I think are probably their best ever at this point. Uh, it sounds so incredibly heavenly, the way they utilize uh, the harp strings at the beginning. Uh, I think it's one of the best songs in their catalog. And uh, I think any band would be lucky to make a song that has this much emotional resonance to it. It's, it's so, so heartbreaking and so incredibly moving uh, in what it does. It's, it's pretty perfect. There's also, um, I do, I love John's voice on this, but also I think the last line or one of them is like, like isn't like happiness is the only thing money can't buy or so it was something along that lines. I forget exactly. And those interesting for two reasons. One, because the Beatles are obviously, well, they're not really rich at this point, but they're famous. 
and you're wondering like, oh, how, like, are they happy? How are they doing? But also it talks about how their parents were like the grew up, you know, fought in World War II. And like, it's a big deal for them to like have money and have a home because they came out of the depression into like World War depression, World War. So for them to be like middle class and just have a home is like a big deal. And that's sort of like the dream. Then you see with the counterculture that happened with the Beatles generation of that's not the ideal anymore. So it's like a generational divide expressed in the song of what your parents want, but what you want. So it's, a, I don't know, perfect song. Probably their, I don't know if it's their best so far, but one of them. I'm going to say it is top. It's going to be one of the top 20. I'm revising my statement from a minute ago. I would agree. So I really enjoy that you guys like this song. Uh, it's a great song. Uh, as I'm sure anybody who's listening could tell you. One of my favorite things about songs like this is that it's really open for interpretation beyond its intent. Like this song was written because Paul McCartney saw a news article about a girl that left home. And he was like, oh, I, I would, why don't I write a song about what that must be like for their parents? And it, it's almost like simplistic when you look at it like that, but it it can mean so much when you're thinking about it. I know for me, when I listen to it, it's like, this is, I feel like, because when you think about it, like there's so many times in anyone's life where they could experience something like this. And this is one of those songs, like I, I forget the exact song, but it was maybe Eleanor Rigby. I think it was what it was, is, is one of those Beatles songs where you're like, oh my God, this has like relevance for like all people, not just like Beatles fans or anything. And it's one of the Beatles best story songs. I, I, I really see it as sort of a sequel to Eleanor Rigby, which was another Paul song. Uh, it's a great song and I, I don't need to say anything more about it other than that. I, oh, oh, there is the story about the actual news article, which Paul read it and didn't follow up. He was just like, oh, a woman left home and wrote that. But the lady who it was about said it was, she was 17. She left home to be with her boyfriend who used to be in the car company business, which is the motor trade, which is mentioned in the song. Uh, and that she was eventually did get tracked down by her parents and that uh, at that time she was pregnant and that's why she was running away. And so she's like, Paul didn't know my story, but it was kind of accurate. So it's an interesting little thing to think about. Also, I know uh, last thing I'll say on the song, if anything, I think it's, I think it's a prequel to Eleanor Rigby mm. because then it feeds into like, she left at the altar and that all that kind of stuff. But also, I'm gonna, yeah. I was going to say, um, I think also for any writer, an interesting thing is who is the narrator in the story and the fact that the song focuses on the parents. Because like, it would be very easy to write this song about a rebellious person who ran away from home. And that's like, would fit into the counterculture, like the 60s, the whole thing of young people. But it's interesting for them to focus on the parents and how they were feeling. It's just an interesting choice narration wise that definitely things should go noted. Yeah, um, I, uh, I the point about Eleanor Rigby, I mean, I don't mean like literally the narrative is a sequel, but I think like as a song, stylistically, it's the second song Paul made that is in that style. In my head canon, it's a prequel now. They feed into each other. Okay, okay. Um, we'll move on to the last song on the first side, which is John Lennon's Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, uh, which was inspired by a... Um, circus poster that John Lennon found 
and you can find the picture of the poster online and all the lyrics are on there. He's basically just reading the poster and it's just like funny things that would happen at a circus. And uh, John Lennon just sort of uh, sang it as he did uh, in this like funny little circus announcer style. Um, and the, uh, the audio of the song, the music seems to reflect this sort of circus theme. Um, and it uh, sort of feels almost like, you know, you're watching this next act in this sort of Sergeant Pepper show and that it's this circus with elephants and jugglers and Henry the horse. Um, and John Lennon has been dismissive of it as he has many songs, but he also said that it was pure like a water, watercolor painting which is, I think, an interesting way to describe a song like this, where it's sort of just like, it is what it is, and the words are what they are, and it's an interesting listen. And uh, I initially did not like the song, and on repeated listens, I, I've grown to like it a bit more, and I wanted to know what you guys thought. Honestly, I didn't want to like it, but I did. Like, it's the same thing of, like, I think how much I love the music can make up for me just not really liking the song and I know it, it doesn't take away from my how I like it is different than how I view the quality of the song if that makes sense like I know it's a great song but I don't have to like it or I was like oh, this is a good song but I don't I'm not gonna listen back to it like that's not the song on this album I'm gonna go to uh this song was, was pretty bonkers uh I appreciated how willing uh they were to just use like I said at the beginning of the album for Sgt. Pepper's, they were willing to just use a bunch of instruments. And for this here, I checked on Wikipedia, and in this song, and to not my surprise, they used the piano, harmonium, Lowry organ, Wurlitzer organ, Mellotron, Hammond organ, glockenspiel, tape loops, bass harmonica, harmonica, even though it's crazy because I didn't even hear harmonica, tambourine, lead guitar, bunch of other things. So basically, they put all this stuff together and they made something that immediately made me go, whoa. Uh, I did not have a clue what this song was about, but honestly, I didn't mind that much. I was willing to sort of, at this point, kind of go along for the ride. Um, literally a ride, because it feels like it's part of a carnival. Uh, it it just felt, this song was clearly aiming for them making sort of like a psychedelic circus experiment. And I'm not going to say this is the best song of the album, because it's not. But uh, I think it's one of the most sonically uh, adventurous songs in the album, without a doubt. And uh, I, I thought it was cool that it exists. So yeah, more weird carnival songs, go for it. And, and a carnival related question, do you think Zoom makes mimes jobs easier? Anyway, <laughs> Ryan, what do, you have, what do you think of the song? Well, it, completely ignoring what you just said, I, I think it's a, an interesting song, it's fun. I think it's funny. I think you can kind of tell, like this is John Lennon being fun. Like I think John Lennon thinks this song was really fun to do. And I, I think it would be fun to do. Like if I was making an album like this, this would be one of my favorite songs to do of like, oh yeah, and then Henry the Horse dances the waltz and let's have this like organ just play like it's some weird clown doing it. And uh, I, I don't, it's probably one of my least favorite songs on the record, just personally, like Harrison said, I wouldn't go and choose to listen to it, but I think it, it's charming. It's very charming. We're gonna flip the disc. <laughs> Uh, over to side two, track one, George Harrison's contribution to the album called Within You, Without You. Um, sort of a break. It's almost like the intermission of this show where you go outside and you find a weird 
I shouldn't say weird, but a, a strange deviation from your normal sonic experience in this album, as not only does George Harrison return to Indian classical music, but his lyrics are much more uh, serious, I would say, and um, encouraging you to be a certain way and to think a certain way, which we see a little bit on the first two albums. I'm sorry, the, the last two albums, Rubber Soul and Revolver, from some of John and George's songs, uh, almost like spiritual leaders with sort of like a message. And this is Sgt. Pepper's message, I think. they are one song that has a clear, you should take this away from it. Uh, this is another song like Mr. Kite's that I didn't really like it the first time I heard it, but the more I've listened to it, the more I appreciate it, even if it's not the style of music that I normally listen to. Uh, and I wanted to know what you guys thought about the music, the lyrics, and the overall sound of Within You, Without You. This is one of those that uh, was definitely less accessible to me, so it wasn't one of my favorites on the album, but I do appreciate it for what it is. Um, I was glad to see the return of the sitar on this song because I think this song gave me sort of a similar effect as uh, I think it was I Love You Too on Revolver. That was George's solo song that had a lot of sitar and was a lot of him sort of philosophizing um, where I, I really liked the sound of the instrument and I thought it was a cool way to sort of introduce more people to it. Um, I also think the message behind the song was interesting too, even if the structure I find a little alienating, talking about how um, the space between us all and uh, ultimately like the differences that we have between each other, we can use that to make change rather than allow that to define any sort of inaction that we don't want to put into place because we feel small. But I think he's arguing the opposite, that because we're very small, uh, we can do more, um, which I thought was a really neat message. Uh, so I don't know if I'd necessarily listen to this song a lot, but I think it's cool for George to have a, like, at least a spot in the album where he's able to sort of give more of his worldview and expand upon that, give us a, a greater idea of who he is and what he believes in, and do it in a way that incorporates uh, the sitar, a really interesting instrument in an interesting way. So cool song. I, I love this song, honestly. Like I, maybe because I think I watched the George Harrison documentary uh, like the day I listened to the album as well, because I have had a lot of free time. But you know, I, I really love this. I loved it musically with the sitar. It may be bongos as well. Like there was other strings to it. That's like, I don't know, I loved some of the lyrics. It was musically, there was, uh, was George's strongest vocal performance. And there was interesting cadence to it. Like I know the Beatles don't, well, George may know more, but than others, but the Beatles don't know how really how to read music or they didn't at this point. And like some of the lines definitely have too many words in them, but like it still fit into it. The, the cadence to it was really weird. Like it felt like, I said it felt like a symphony. There's also a countin' like mid song. But yeah, I noticed some of the lyrics where it was um, people who hide themselves behind the walls of illusion, life goes on within you and without you. Uh, the people who gain the world and lose the soul. And then they just ask, are you one of them? And then never brings that up again, which is a very like, like hold up mirror to listener. And then just like, anyway, have fun. Like, you, it's like, you may be a bad person anyway. And then you walk off. Also, I didn't realize like, when I listened to it, life goes on within you and without you. I think I just got of like, oh yeah, like, I guess, what other song was it uh, on the last album that we talked about Sondering? What was the... Um, that other people are living not the same experience. Sonder, but yeah. Yeah, but like, do, you know, do you know what song that was? 
It was Eleanor Rigby. It was the Sonder, like that feeling that everybody else is living as full and as vivid as a life as you are. Well, that may not be what this song is about, but I made that, just now making that connection where it's like, like you're living in your own world right now, but there's life without, like, without you. Like either saying like the world would be there without you, but also literally like without, like outside of you, there's life going on. Um, people experiencing their own, being the main characters of their own story. So I, I love this song. I didn't think I was going to like it as well because it's really long and there's sitar and I have not liked most of George's songs so far, but this was great. 10 out of 10. Wood sitar again. I also really like this song. It's grown on me a lot. Every time I listen to it, I like it more. Um, I think it really invites you to close your eyes and really listen to what George is saying. The music is sort of, it's just George. There's no other Beatles in this song. It's George and a bunch of um, his friends uh, and Indian musicians he knows playing on this. And uh, a lot of people have pointed to the lyrics as, uh, I know this is sort of higher level things, but it's a, it's a combination of George Harrison's experiences with like psychedelic drugs and with uh, Indian faith that he's sort of starting to find the same real. He's meant, he mentioned in interviews that he stopped doing LSD when he realized he was getting the same level of like revelations and like new meaning to his life from Indian religion. And so he's sort of combining them to like in this song of the idea of living without uh, a love for yourself but a love for everyone else where he's saying like people are hiding behind illusions. You are, you know, obsessed with yourself and like material things when instead we should be focusing on this sort of universal love. And I think Harrison's point about the title is really good that life goes on within you. Like you have like a ton of love and life in you and also without you over in the world. And I feel like the song is sort of trying to bridge it and saying, take the love inside you and the love outside you and connect them. So I think it's a very, very fun song uh, lyrically and a very interesting one. It's just always funny, but also incredibly impressive to think of. They went from like singing five years, four years before this, that like a cover, like a taste of honey. And now they have this incredible, like this guy learned how to play sitar in like four years, less than four years, like a year. And it's on an album. And I can't think of a modern equivalent of a musician who just be like, like, there's no musician now who's going to be like, I'm just going to learn the trumpet and it's going to be on a song I have. And it's going to be this really great six minute song that's complicated, but the Beatles were able to do that, which is, it speaks to how great musicians they were. Yeah. The only other point I have about uh, Within You, Without You, which kind of connects to Harrison is that George was kind of doing his own thing. And he said, I have no interest in this Sgt. Pepper's concept thing. So that's kind of why the song sticks out a lot. And I also think that listing-wise, it's a good place to put it right in the middle because if you put it anywhere else, it would feel like it was interrupting the flow of songs. This being the first song on side one or side two, you kind of get half of the experience, take a break, listen to George's song, the rest of like the Sgt. Pepper's experience. So it's an interesting sort of middle uh, interlude. We then have When I'm 64. And this is one of those songs that I have, I've mentioned a lot on this album that there are songs that I didn't like Mr. Kite and within you without you that I didn't love at first, but sort of started to get more and more uh, interested in this song has actually done the opposite. 
every time I listen to this song, I like it less, which to me, which is sad because I think it's a good song, but I, I don't want to sour the discussion right away. But basically, it's a song Paul McCartney wrote when he was 14. Um, and it's about growing old with somebody. And it's a pretty sweet uh, little song uh, that, of course, as I'm sure many people at this point can expect, uh, John Lennon hated and thought it was complete garbage. But um, I want to know what you guys think. I mean, I liked it. I thought it was a good song. I mean, um, what did I write down for notes? Let's see. I wrote, my first note was, an abrupt shift, which I think that was probably most people's reaction when they were first listening to this album of like sitar and mysticism, and then just Paul with the guitar. Um, was there, you have to check for this from me, Ryan, but there was brass, but was there clarinet or oboe in the song? We'll have to see there. There, was, to... there was clarinet. There was clarinet. There was clarinet. There was clarinet. One for three so far. No, but it was much more musically layered than I remembered. I think I remember the song as literally just being Paul singing about it and just like with a guitar. But it's much more, I don't know if it's complicated, but there's much more going on than I think I expected there to be. Um, but yeah, it's just, this is also, I mean, in the many, many Paul songs that are about love, this is just an interesting one. It's different than all the other ones because the other ones, maybe some later albums tend to get like concerning at some points. Like uh, what was the one we just talked about? Um, getting Better, where it sort of gets concerning. For this is very much just sort of nice, but also like yin for the long run, uh, which is also, it must be an interesting thing for one to hear with as a 14 year old, but also singing it as a, however old he is now and being incredibly famous. It's a much different question to ask the person you're with, like, are you in this for the long run? And we all know that, at least we may not all know, but spoilers, his current girlfriend, Jane Asher, like they break up. So it's, in, it's just interesting that maybe who he had in mind as he recorded the song would not be there when he was 64 with for him. So I don't know, it's just something. Yeah, uh, this is a song that I think I, I also appreciated more listening to it again. Um, I, it's interesting because it, it definitely has very much a sort of cute, uh, very earnest feel to it, um, particularly with the clarinets that almost remind me of Animal Crossing for some reason. It just feels very hopeful. Um, but I also just like the song in the context of him having written it when he was 14 and performing it in clubs because it's almost like him being in conversation with his younger self because uh, obviously Paul at this point was not 64. At this point, he's older than 64. But um, when obviously on Sgt. Pepper's, he was like in his 20s, I believe. Um, even then, though, it's, it's interesting that he really didn't change much of the lyrics since then and that it still uh, takes on a different sort of meaning for him at this point, now being one of the biggest people in the world versus some unknown teenager who wrote these same sentiments, does he feel the same performing them? Um, I also think that even though it is a little bit, uh, it's definitely more earnest sounding, it does have some of the musical complexity of the rest of the album in it, um, particularly the background vocals when he's singing, you'll be older too, and then it sort of slows down and has a bit of strings behind it. And then this really interesting, uh, horn section that uh i think you mentioned was either like oboe or something like that um it surprised me at certain points so um it's a nice cheery song but it has more going on with it than i gave credit for how quickly do you think paul mccartney almost disowned his kids when they had children and did not name them vera chuck and dave 
because he's he's been planning that since he was 14 and he was like okay kids live up to the expectation and then they don't so like i don't know that's out of the estate no money pay for your own kids uh it that to me is hilarious but um and sadly he has no ch- grandchildren in vera chuck or dave um i like this song it's a fun sweet little thing for me i dislike it in the sense that i feel like it doesn't fit and like it doesn't really it's sort of low-key it doesn't fit in the sense that it's a weird song to come right after within you without you but it also part of sergeant pepper's i think is sort of this experience where everything is sort of extravagant and strange. This song is is strange and this song is very low key and not simplistic, but smooth, I guess, which almost feels different. It's not a bad song, but I can't imagine it being on this album, but I also can't imagine it really being on any album by the Beatles. um, Other than I I have, wait, wait, picture this. Okay. You give this song to help. And then you take um, from Revolver. That's um, what's the song we all really liked that Paul sang for no one? Is that? Yeah. You yeah. put that one on this one and then you shift from Revolver. Um, uh, what's the, the Good Day Sunshine to Rubber Soul? So it, no, to help. So it all works out in the end. All, same number of songs in each album. I, I don't know if I agree with that, if only because I think obviously the songwriting of For No One is, is really great and it would make sense from that perspective on this album, but I think instrumentally it's too minimal to really fit here. I think it's kind of similar to Ryan's um, criticism of, of this song being on the album, but I get that though. I, it's it's an interesting idea for it to switch around certain songs. Maybe at the end of this podcast, we can say like, this song should have been on that album. It would have been better that way. I don't know. Right. Well, in any case, these are just my opinions. Uh, we are closing in on the end of the record. We are on Lovely Rita, another Paul McCartney song, back to back. This might be my favorite song on the album. Boy, do I love this song. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of great music on this one. I feel like it, it is like sneaky psychedelic. You, you sort of get this front half of, oh, lovely Rita. Oh, my gosh. And then it's sort of slow. You, you, at some point, it hits you, and it's like, dun, dun, and it sort of, like, leads you. To, I hate when I do those mouth noises, but it sort of leads you, like, by the hand into psychedelic music, and you sort of uh, don't expect it. Um, and uh, it's, it's about, like, a police officer. By the way, surface-level lyrics are, like, a police officer giving Paul McCartney a ticket. And he's like, won't you go out with me? Which is, I think, a bad defense to, uh, to any officer putting a ticket on your car. Unless maybe um, you're Paul McCartney. And maybe that could work. But, uh, yeah, the only other thing I have to say about Lovely Rita before we start talking about it is that uh, Pink Floyd was there when they were recording it just the band Pink Floyd when in their early years showed up and they watched them recording. They're like, wow. But uh, yeah, that's, that's my little story. So I want to know what you guys thought of lovely Rita. Um, I had no idea of that Pink Floyd anecdote. I think that's just wondering, do you know if they contributed anything or they were just there during No, it? no, no. They were just there watching them mix it. I think that's super interesting. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I had never heard this song before, and uh, I was really surprised. I thought this was really, really uh, very free-sounding. 
really beautiful. I think this is the peak, the peak of Beatles' use of saloon piano. I have never heard a better Beatles saloon piano. Every once in a while, you get little sprinkles of it, some on with the Beatles, some on for the Beatles, some on the other Beatles albums that have worse uses of saloon piano, because this is the best use of saloon piano. Um, great background vocals from John. I understand Harrison's complaints about John's voice, but for some reason, I just think it works a lot of times. Um, and I thought it complemented Paul's main vocals here well. Uh, they have a bit of sort of a, a slide charm and knowing sort of self-aware humor to them to, for me. So uh, I appreciated the sort of the light touch that, that still had a bit of a sly edge to it. Uh, and uh, one of the strongest beginnings of a song in this album, I think. Yeah, so I really liked this song. Um, I loved the opening. I wrote down, I said there was a zip sound. Also, that he said book. Instead of book, he said like book, which is like the German way to say it, which I don't know if that's a leftover from their, their Hamburg days. Um, great piano break, great background vocals. Someone making, I wrote someone made a sound. I don't know if that's true, but I wrote it in my notes, so I'm going to pretend it is. But I also didn't know this was a Paul song. Um, I don't know who I thought it was, but overall, I really, really liked it. And I said, I wrote the story could have gone on in the song, but I just didn't. It just sort of ended. Yeah, overall, liked it. Yeah, I really like the song. I like the lyrics of it. Um, there's a the funny note about the name Rita is that a, there's like a rumor. I don't know if this is true, but that the song was inspired by a real woman giving Paul McCartney a parking ticket. And someone said, oh, why did you call it Rita? Is that her name? And he goes, well, she looked like a Rita to me. Um, and I think this song is lovely. I think uh, there's a lot of fun to be had here. The piano is great. I do like that sort of ending psychedelic sort of slide into a, a bit more chaotic stuff. Uh, I like the um, part. Uh, remember that part? Uh, and overall, I think I, I don't have a ton to say because it's one of the more uh, easy to understand musically songs, but it's one of my favorites on the album and I really like it. The next song is Good Morning, Good Morning, which is a, a John Lennon song. This is a song uh, that I like. It's a bit weird to me. There's a bunch of animal songs, animal sounds on it and not like, I don't know. That was the thing that threw me off about pet sounds was when there were literally pet sounds on it. I was like, oh, oh okay. It's promised in the title. <laughs> and so I was excited. Uh, to hear the animal noises. Uh, we mentioned animals as soon as Harrison's cat jumps on the screen, which is a fun little quinky dink. And I want to know what you guys think about Good Morning, Good Morning. I don't have much to say about this song besides I did not like when Paul said good morning. That's like, other than that, I thought really good drumming. I love the musical stuff. Brass was back, guitar solo. But like, gosh, like literally the title of the song, it annoyed me when Paul sang it. And that is, I'll say this, it's the only reason that this album does not have a perfect score for me, this song, and it's Paul's fault. Well, I, you'll be happy to know it's John singing, so. He sings the good morning part? He sings, he sings the chorus, yeah. And who sings I mean, the him, him and, they, they both, it's John Lennon on lead and the chorus. Paul's backing him up, but it's John Lennon. Oh, well, that makes me feel better. If Harrison doesn't like it, that means it was definitely John singing. Um, this song kind of sounded like they had three different songs and then it all played them at the same time. 
Uh, I don't mean that as a complaint necessarily, because I think that Ringo's drumming here just continues to get better, and I love seeing more spotlights for it. It's like, I feel like we haven't really mentioned it much, but this has been like a strong album for, for Ringo drumming. I've, I've been a real fan of it. Um, I was really happy to get another Beatles song with more prominent horns in it after Revolver. Um, I feel like we've, this is probably the most horn-driven album they've had, which is cool. Um, great guitar, too. This, this song feels extremely chaotic, but in a way that I think works more than it doesn't work. I wouldn't call it my favorite song in the album, but you can tell they had a great time making this one. And I think this song is kind of what the album cover sounds like, if that makes any sense. Like, it just kind of seems like every single person on the album cover, which there are like 80, all contributed to this song. Uh, and the animal sounds, honestly, I can't think of another way the song could have ended. It just seems like it was leading there. So, yeah. Yeah, this is this might be my least favorite song in the record, just because I, I don't, like, have any strong feelings towards it. But uh, it's not bad. There, there's no bad songs on this album. Uh, rolling forward onto uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band Reprise, we have one of the only instances where uh, the band is playing normally. I haven't mentioned it too much, but on all these songs, there's like a weird lineup of not everybody's playing their instruments and they have session musicians and guest peoples and some people aren't on this and John's playing bass for some reason. And this is one of the only songs where everybody's playing their designated instrument and everybody's actually singing. This is all four Beatles are singing playing their stage instruments, as they would call it. Um, and it's just sort of a, a little remix of the title track uh, inspired by uh, the Beatles road manager saying, well, if Sgt. Pepper opens the album, he should kind of close it too. And as our penultimate track, uh, what did you guys think of the reprise of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band? Um, I thought it was musically actually a bit, little bit more interesting than the first one, but also... I, just, I really like the fact that they add a, they add a few words into lines. Like was um, I, don't know, I guess I just sort of repeat but like Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. Like and then they say like one and only Hearts Club. I forget the exact line, but they basically repeat it, and it's just but also it's in the same um, measure basically musically. So I just found that interesting. But yeah, it's I don't know. It's like a one minute song, so it's not there's not a lot to comment on. To me, it's almost sort of like the fake out end credit song before the real end credit song. Um, and I think they, they realize that too. Um, it's cool to see them like be able to fully commit to a concept album like this, seeing the, the first track reflected back here and it being the title of the album. Uh, the drumming to start this song off is awesome. Uh, it's, it's really, really harsh and distinctive and immediately kind of gets your head bobbing a lot. Um, I think this is the first time I can really recall being like especially remembering like the use of electric guitar in a Beatles song. I mean, I think they, they may have used it before now, but this really feels like they, they put it front and center in a cool way. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's energetic and it serves as a, as a nice little interlude before like the real ending of the album. Yeah, it, it's a fun little reprise. I, I think I like the original a little bit better, but uh, I, there's not a ton to say other than that it's a nice little way to to tie it all up in a little bow. Um, and I, I do like what you said, Tyler. For me, it's sort of like if this was a stage performance, uh, you know, if this whole show, this is like the closing song. Everybody claps and cheers and the curtain closes. And then our next song sort of plays over the speakers as you're leaving. Um, the last song is A Day in the Life. Uh, which some people have called the Beatles' best song. 
the best song ever. People have thrown all kinds of accolades on this song. It's actually two songs combined into one. Uh, John Lennon wrote the normal uh, verses, uh, and Paul McCartney wrote the bit in the middle that he sings, the woke up, fell out of bed, um, and they combined it together. Um, they also worked together on the rest of the song. Paul McCartney uh, made the orchestra bits for it. There's an interesting uh, segment in an interview with Paul McCartney where he talks about, he told them, start at the lowest note on your instrument and go to the highest note at any rate that you want. So you could go or you could go do, 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 do. And apparently the orchestra had no idea what he was talking about. And he had to get George Martin to like explain that to them in orchestra terms. Um, but it's an interesting, there's like photos of him, Paul McCartney, like, I don't know if he's pretending, pretending, pretending to conduct them or actually conducting them, but he's got the conductor stick. And so they're interesting photos. I, this song is very strange to me. Uh, there's a lot of different feelings I have for this song. Most, almost all of them are positive. Uh, I think the lyrics are really interesting to me. There's some kind of sense of melancholy to this song, which for me is very sobering because the whole album feels very uplifting and sort of like a fun stage show. And then this, this song feels like dropping a giant emotional boulder on me. But I wanted to know what you guys thought of A Day in the Life. And I expect we'll be talking about it for a while. Uh, no comment, really. You know, that's not nothing big. Um, Tyler? Not much better. No. Um, this is easily like a top five, maybe top three Beatles song. You realistic. It, honestly, I, you could easily call this the best Beatles song. I'm not right now, but mm. I think you definitely could. I, mm. I, I, I have to think about that more. It's, it's one of their best without a doubt. No, have an opinion um, now and never change it. <laughs> it's a top five Beatles song is what I'm saying. Uh, I get full goosebumps uh, the entire time that I hear this song. John's vocals in the first half of it. Are, I'm glad you mentioned the melancholy feeling. Like they're downright spooky. Like he sounds like a ghost on this song. I don't know if it's like the echo they put to his vocals or just he's just nasally enough that he just sounds not totally alive. It just sounds really, really interesting. Um, the lyrics here, you could put, you could have like an hour long podcast episode just about the lyrics alone. Um, considering that obviously they're based on a real story of like a news article that he read, similar to how other songs in this album come about. But um, he just puts you into this this weird abstract feeling of something not being quite right in a really fascinating way. Um, the willingness of the song to switch it up right in the middle is like, I think it's like the most exciting moment in any Beatles song for me. It just completely throws you for a loop and, and brings you to something else entirely. Paul's part fits perfect too. Um, I love, again, like seeing that contrast between the two styles here and how they managed to pull off every part here so absurdly well. Um, the final piano, like, Bong, which I read they achieved by having three different people play piano at the same time and then overlaying that three more times. It just feels so momentous. And it's like the perfect culmination of everything this album is building to. Um, and then one more thing too, you mentioned when we were talking about Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds about how it almost felt Willy Wonka-ish, I believe. And to me, the strings in this, the really scary strings remind me of the tunnel scene in Willy Wonka where you sort of start out the factory and then you go through the tunnel and then Paul's part as you coming back to the factory and the other weird parts of it. Uh, this song's a masterpiece. You don't, I don't see how you make a song more dynamic, more exciting, more, 
more special than than this to close out an album i ringos i don't want to sound delusional but this paul mccartney guy sounds a lot like the lead singer of wings i don't know if we ever discussed that or talked about it, but that's just something to keep in mind as we move forward did he also sing wonderful christmas time is that no i think there are three separate people uh, but for this song I went into it really ready to dislike it because it was not my, it's still not one of my favorite Beatles songs. Um, but I was, I was letting that get in the way of me appreciating the, what the song actually is, but like, it's obviously it's an amazing song. Um, also it's, there's a lead into it. It's the only other song in the album that has a lead in cause Sergeant Pep, the reprise leads into it. Um, I read that the piano and the drums are like the heroes of the song just because they're so great. Uh, my cat is currently trying to knock over a big plant bowl. So I apologize for that if you hear shaking. Um, this song is in, it's anxiety inducing. I've never had a song induce anxiety in me, but this one did with the whole buildup and the huge, um, I think we we're talking about the part where it's like highest note to lowest note. Sorry, my cat is really being, shut up cat. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's in, Anxiety inducing Paul, it's uh, for John, it's my favorite vocal performance of his. Um, it's just, I don't know, it, it's hard to it's hard to say anything original on this song because it is such a great song. Um, but I did, I love the end part where you can like hear chairs creaking and like then people just basically just like getting up and leaving, which I thought was really interesting. I also like the repeated weird vocal thing at the end. That's like pseudo part of the song, which is, I guess, just part of the recording, but I just really loved what they were willing to do. And I was curious, like, how weirded out Beatles fans must have been when they listened to this. Like, maybe not weirded out, but it's like, because this is, even on Revolver, this is nothing like they've done before. Because I, I thought Revolver was sort of messy. This was very clean and weird. And, like, I like it and I appreciate it, but just interesting to think of, like, what would the, like, like, I can't remember the first time I listened to this song. But, like, someone buys the album, puts it on the recording, like, what did they think about it? Because it was must have like not freaked them out but i mean like they must have been like oh this is really really different it's such a strange song no matter what time period you play it in really i can't imagine what it was like at the time yeah i i think the general reception at the time was that it was very good even if it was very strange and that's how i feel about it the 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 lyrics to the song always speak to me the, the especially the first verse is always just very, very interesting to me. A lot of people have attributed to the Beatles friend, uh, Tara Brown, who was like the inheritor of the Guinness, like beer fortune, and he died in a car accident. And, um, but to me, there's something about um, the lyrics and the way John Lennon's voice on the song, I think is so good. It's almost like, to me, he's narrating all these things with such, like dispassion and like there's almost like a lack of like an emptiness to his voice where you can't tell if he's numb or sad or doesn't care and um paul mccartney's little bit at the middle i think is like a really fun like change of pace and change back especially when um it sort of jumps back in uh to lennon's verse but you can tell lennon's second part is more upbeat than it's first part because you, there's still some leftover energy from Paul's part in the middle. Um, it's almost hard to talk about the song because there's so much, 
but I, I think the instrumentation is really awesome. The orchestral parts are really interesting. And I feel like this song kind of roots all of Sgt. Pepper's together in that all these songs on their own are these fun little show tunes. But then when you tie them down to a day in the life, you can really see that um, they all might have this same meaning. And the title has always interested me because it's never said in the lyrics. And it, to me, the first thought is a day in the life of a beetle, a, a day in the life of a normal person, like a day in the world. Like it's always been interesting to me thinking about how the lyrics and the sound and the title connect. Uh, and I think it's a great song. I, I would kind of agree that I wouldn't put it in my top five or 10 because to me, it's almost more of like a spectacle than like a song I like listening to, but it's definitely one of their greatest mm -hmm. achievements, even if it isn't one of my favorite of their yeah. songs. Yeah, I don't, also, know if I've, I don't know if I've ever like been like, I really want to listen to this song or a day in my life. Like I, I appreciate that it's really great, but it feels it feels like a three hour movie that you maybe watched a few times and it's like, oh, I know it's good, but like, I'm never just gonna like sit down midday and be like, I should watch a three hour movie right now. That'd be a productive use of my time. And I feel like that's sort of the equivalent. It may be a masterpiece, but it's not something I turn to often. Also fun fact, I read that this song took more time uh, to take, to make actually than the entirety of the Please Please Me album. <laughs> Yeah, if you remember, the Please Please Me album was one day, like a 10-hour recording <laughs> session. Can I, can I hit you with a theory, Ryan, that you just caused to occur in my mind? Go ahead. You said John's voice is all about, like, you can tell it's, like, very sad. It's melancholy. Could even be, like, described as depressed. And then there's the abrupt shift to Paul. And it's interesting because if you think of, either you can think of depression clinically or just a deep sadness, but often feelings that you have on the inside aren't outward showing. And you see like where John maybe is like the inner feelings of just like this really deep sadness over what's going on. And then Paul's the outward of just like, but in, like you look and see people around all the time and they're just running to get the bus. And like, you don't know what they're thinking right now or how they're feeling. So maybe it's just sort of that of like, Paul is the outward face and John is described in the inward face, maybe of the same person, just a theory. I think it's an interesting theory. I think it's a really interesting one that um, I think you could probably take further, but we are unfortunately running out of time. Uh, so there closes the 13 or so tracks of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I think it's intimidating this album almost if you go into it thinking, oh, this is, some people think this is the greatest album ever. And you just listen to it because to me, it's not the Beatles greatest album but it's up there in terms of quality it's very consistent all the songs are very good it's a it's a good listen it's a fun album it you you hear about these big it's it's you know when you're listening to it's almost like when you're watching citizen kane you get so caught up in this movie is so good that you don't like sit down and enjoy the movie and i think people with this album if you haven't heard it before it's just just enjoy it like it's a fun album you could think of how you think of it how you want to but don't be sitting there thinking i have to like it just enjoy it so for me my final thoughts on the album i would put this below revolver and rubber soul but not by much um but all three at this point in the beatles career are incredible albums this album is better than what 90 percent of bands can produce um it's probably my fourth favorite 
all time, but it's got some great songs on here. Um, really love Paul and John's contributions on this one and George's and Ringo's. Um, but I mean like Paul and John's togetherness on it. For me, I would probably put it somewhere in the A range, flat A, cool, a cool 95 if I were scoring it on a test. Uh, but I'd like to know your guys, not just your score or how you would rate it, but what you think about the album overall. I really liked it. I was the first time, I mean, I've, I think I've, before this podcast, I think I'd only ever listened to Abbey Road completely, and that's because you played it for me, Ryan, when we were in our dorm room. Um, but I really just, I really liked this. And for a score, I gave it a 99. And really, the only thing that took it down for me was the Good Morning, Good Mornings. I just couldn't get over it. And I don't know if this, I don't know if this album has my favorite Beatles songs. But I also can recognize that, like, I've Just Seen a Face is one of my favorite Beatles songs. And I know that's probably not in the top 50 best Beatles songs. So I can, like, I can separate how I like it from how I can view, like, appreciate it. Or, um, yeah, I think this is probably, I gave it a 99 because I thought it was almost perfect. Um, even though this album probably only has two or three songs I'm going to go to and, like, would actively put on a playlist or listen. If I had to rank the albums right now, it would be Sgt. Pepper, Rubber Soul, Revolver, and Help, maybe Tad or Revolver, I guess a point up. And then Hard Day's Night, Beatles for Sale, with the Beatles Please Please Me. So I think that's that would be my ranking right now. God, it's really, really difficult to, uh, to rank these or just sort of, you know, give a, an overarching judgment of these, even after an hour of talking about it, especially considering it's an album that gives you so much to talk and think about. And it's one that definitely, I'm sure, rewards you with every listen. Um, so obviously this being my first listen isn't meant to be like a final judgment call on it. I think this is most likely the Beatles' most comprehensive creative achievement at this point. Um, I think that uh, they went out to make a concept album and they completely nailed that in terms of creating a world and a unique musical environment that was a progression for them, but it also, um, it was a progression for music period at that point, which is its own achievement. Uh, some of my favorite Beatles songs are on this without a doubt, at least three of my favorite Beatles songs or the ones that are among my favorites are on here. Um, and this is one that I can definitely see myself continuing to appreciate more and more with every listen. I think it's definitely better than Rubber Soul. Um, Revolver, I would have to think about it because, I don't know, they're both very different because Revolver, as I said, is more of a collection of songs that flow well together. And this is like a cohesive unit of stuff that, that calls back to each other and, and uh, creates sort of a symphony together. So it feels weird to put any sort of minus on this album because there's re they're really isn't much to call a minus. I'm going to give it the, like the strongest possible A minus at this point, And then I can see myself bumping it up to an A easily. Um, and it's a different type of A minus from rubber, from a revolver. So uh, once we get to the end of this podcast and I'll have more time to reflect, which is why I'm glad we're doing it week by week. Cause I have more time to sit with it. I am sure I will have different thoughts on it, but uh, I, I, without a doubt, I love this. So uh, some great thoughts today. Some great discussion, everybody. Uh, we all liked Sgt. Pepper's. It, it, uh, it's a great one. Uh, next week, we will be discussing Magical Mystery Tour. Now, uh, a brief preface that I will go over again at the start of next week's episode. In 
the UK, where the Beatles are from, they released uh, a film called Magical Mystery Tour uh, for TV. It was a TV film. And uh, it had a soundtrack to it, like all Beatles stuff does. And that, was, that soundtrack was released as an EP because it was only six or seven songs. Separately, in 1967, the Beatles had released five or six singles that were all highly acclaimed. In the U.S., in the 60s, we didn't really know what EPs were. So we got an album, an LP, and side one was the film soundtrack, Magical Mystery Tour, and side two was all the singles from 1967. So for ease of listening and discussion, we will be going with the U.S. album version of Magical Mystery Tour next week. So listen to that. It should have the songs from the soundtrack, uh, which are more or lesser known, but I think very good ones. Uh, and then the singles, which are all famous songs like Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane, I'm the Walrus. Um, and I think we'll have a great time. And uh, next week, Magical Mystery Tour is our final week discussing the Beatles classic or psychedelic period. And the week after that, we will be discussing the White Album uh, in our big, spectacular, multi-part episode that we're all very excited for. We're going to have a lot of discussion on that, a special guest, and much, much more coming up on Radio Ryan Presents. Three Ringos, the Beatles podcast here on WCCS Wheaton College Network. I'm Ryan, and on behalf of Harrison, Tyler, Ringos everywhere, thank you and goodbye.